The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. We are all water riding. It kind of creates this atmosphere where people can build something together and they feel like they're building something together. And if we learn anything, it's both recognizing the bloody stream of violence that you talked about, how many people are lost in the way. And it kind of challenges this very idea of like, oh, you know, Walter Rodney is the vanguard of the revolution. But then what is our responsibility to understand now our time, place, condition? Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. This week we are going to be talking about the life and revolutionary legacies of Walter Rodney. The Guyanese academic and activist was born in 1942 in Georgetown, Guyana, and he lectured and travelled and organised all over the world in Tanzania, in Jamaica, in the UK, to name a few. He was the author of many works, including Decolonial Marxism, History of the Upper Guinea Coast, The Groundings with My Brothers, The Russian Revolution, A View from the Third World, and How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Now, many of those titles were published and collected posthumously because, tragically, his life was cut short when he was assassinated also in Georgetown, Guyana, in 1980 at the age of just 38. But his legacies and his thought continue to echo down the ages, having an enormous influence on many fields of study, including uh, decolonial studies, Marxism, Pan-Africanism, critical geography, to name just a few. So to take a little bit of a dive into that very expansive legacy, I am joined today by two fabulous guests, Robin D.G. Kelly and Kevin Ocheng Okoth. Robin D.G. Kelly is a distinguished professor and Gary B. Nash endowed chair in U.S. history at UCLA. He's a contributing editor for the Boston Review, and his books include Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communist During the Great Depression, and alongside Jesse Benjamin, he co-edited the book Walter Rodney, The Russian Revolution, A View from the Third World. Kevin Ocheng Okoth is a writer and researcher based in London. He's part of the Salvage Editorial Collective, and he's the founding editor of Nomomag and a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. He holds an MPhil in political theory from the University of Oxford, and he's the author of Red Africa, Reclaiming Revolutionary Black Politics, which is forthcoming this October from Verso Books. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Appreciate it. So, um, I think it's fair to say that when we talk about the intertwining of someone's life with their work, there is uh, there are a few figures who embody that uh, uh, lived version of praxis more acutely than Walter Rodney. He was analysing the struggle as he was participating in it as an active agent. So I think it's really worth diving into his life, who he was as a person. I was wondering if we could start with yourself, Robin. Like, How would you characterize that legacy of he's sometimes called a guerrilla academic? Yeah, that's the term he used. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, he was also very deeply international mm-hmm. and a pan-Africanist. So the fact that, you know, he, he comes out of uh, he goes to school in, Jama- in Jamaica, gets his degree, goes to uh, England, uh, gets a PhD very, very young, actually, 24 years old, 
uh, and then ends up in Dar es Salaam at a moment uh, when the university is a magnet for uh, people of African descent and Africans all over the, the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he enters a space that's deeply international from the beginning. Um, and, you know, we could talk later about his decision, you know, to I mean, what happened in Jamaica, grounded with my brother, what happened in Montreal. That's a, We could talk about that, but I want to just zero in on one thing in particular, uh, and that is that when he was at Dar, um, his Scott, what he was working on before um, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa was this book on the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. And he made a choice because of the political circumstances and the winds uh, to shift, to, to set aside the Russian Revolution work uh, and then focus on Africa. So imagine how different it would have been because he was, he was teaching a seminar on the French Revolution, studying the Russian Revolution, uh, teaching that. Um, and arguing that the Russian Revolution is the window into understanding uh, the possibilities of African and third world socialism in the future. So I I just want to emphasize that because sometimes we think, especially in this day and age, we think that internationalism is something that's uh, almost like a violation of (laughs) of Mm pan-Africanism in this age of the kind of a certain kind of identity politics. Um, let's talk a little bit more about um, that Pan-Africanism because I'm curious about the waters that he was swimming in intellectually. Um, obviously, Pan-Africanism is like a large, it's an expansive movement and it contains you know, a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, perhaps contradictions within it. He's in conversation with people like George Padma, Padmore, Kwame Nkrumah um, and there is obviously the discussion about the nation state as a potential vector of liberation and how that ties in to the broader questions of internationalism. Um, Kevin, I'm just wondering what you make of these discussions that um, Rodney is marinating in. Yeah, I feel like Rodney was very much kind of participating in a conversation that is less so a big conversation now, but was then, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a discourse on national liberation Marxism almost, where the idea of national liberation wasn't didn't seem as like it was a contradiction with uh, kind of internationalist aims. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of fit within that picture of maybe a broader third worldist politics that um, kind of Walter Rodney was contributing to. And I guess, you know, if we're talking about people who inspired Rodney, like Amakaka Cabral, mm-hmm. um, kind of having a same or like a similar outlook on what it means or what the kind of um, national liberation means in this broader kind of world revolutionary project. Um, I think with Rodney, the interesting thing is that he does contribute to a lot of conversations at the time, but I think he's also very distinct and specific in uh, emphasizing his commitment to Marxism, which I think very few people at the time did so as explicitly and as kind of constantly as Walter Rodney did. Um, And I think there's also, in his thought, there's so many vectors that kind of um, cross over with other conversations too, if we're talking internationalism also. Robin, you just mentioned his Mm -hmm. time at Dar es Salaam kind of um, the influence of maybe an emerging world systems theory or dependency theory from Latin America, which is kind of also, these are bodies of thought that Walter Rodney was able to incorporate into his work. And then we see a lot of traces of that in, for example, how Europe underdeveloped Africa in terms of its method. Absolutely. In in that methodology, um, there is this uh, framework of 
underdevelopment. Right? And I would love to dig into that a little bit because often when um, when we hear the word development today, it's in this kind of like NGO-ified context, right? Which has this uh, notion of progress, notion of capitalist progress kind of embedded into it. And um, as you say, he's very firmly within the Marxist tradition. He's drawing a lot from uh, historical materialism. And I'm uh, wondering about how he... Uh, conceives of that notion of development and underdevelopment. Um, Robin? Okay, well, um, one of the things that's really important is that it is a Marxist interpretation of African history with the focus on not just the rise of um, European development. Mm -hmm. And this is where he, he both draws on aspects of dependency theory, but then breaks with it. You know, because he breaks with it because for him, of course, development basically means a capacity to uh, to expand and grow, mm -hmm. uh, whatever that means, you know. But underdevelopment is a term that some of the dependency theorists thought of as uh, a way in which the um, nations at the periphery get drawn in through world systems theory, mm -hmm. get drawn into capitalist uh, systems, but get drawn in and become dependent on the metropole. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, actually, if anything, you could, you could really call this book how Africa developed, you know, how Africa became the basis for the development of capitalism yeah. in Europe. Because <laughs> that's what he's arguing. He's saying, you know, there would be no um, sort of robust capitalist uh, mode of production in Europe had it not been for the way in which uh, wealth, labor, um, uh, resources were extracted from Africa. And not just from the moment of what Marx calls primary accumulation or primitive accumulation, but throughout, through the period of colonialism, for example. So, so what, what, I, what I would really emphasize is that the violence of capital accumulation in the development of the productive forces in Europe that's what caused what he's calling underdevelopment. Mm -hmm. That is to say, um, uh, suppressing or arresting technological development, uh, colonial exploitation, you know, exploiting the colonial working classes at a much higher rate of exploitation, surplus being extracted and exported out of the countries. I mean, even the use of currency boards, for example, mm. to just steal <laughs> money from... Um, uh, African nations. And then, of course, you have the environmental, and he's way ahead on this, on the environmental destruction. Does land destroy? Uh, monocrops basically undermine um, the ability of people to sort of get the, the, the kind of nutrients they need um, and destroys the soil. Uh, mining, gas, oil reserves, uh, all this rips up the land. And most importantly, and this is probably the, the argument he makes, which is really fundamental, the most important resource extracted from Africa were people. Mm -hmm. And he's pushing back against scholarship then and even now that says, well, the slave trade, you know, it was pretty bad, but um, that's not the reason why uh, Africa's poor. Mm -hmm. um, and he lays it out, you know, very powerfully, what it means to take... Um, one to kill one fifth of the population and extract so many more at the prime of their lives, from ages ten to, to thirty, basically, or ten to twenty-four, uh, and 
to extract that and then destroy productive forces. So all the possibility of cloth manufacturing, trade, the development of of um, independent uh, forms of economy that would be international, all that destroyed through this process of what they call the slave trade, but really it's, it's a catastrophe of kidnapping, you know. And as you say, there is this um, real centrality of the idea of work and the worker in this analysis, right? There's this idea that, um, of course, of course, there would be such like destruction raw if you just suddenly violently disappear masses of working age people, skilled people, knowledgeable people from an entire continent's economy. And uh, that centrality of um, work, I think, is really interesting in his contribution to the kind of detail of the development of Marxism in that he has, uh, I I guess, what I would understand to be a sort of um, an adaptation of um, Marx's, I guess, traditional is maybe a blunt way of putting it, but a sort of standard interpretation of the development of history of that uh, capitalism is a kind of defeat of feudalism. It is something that completely ruptures with um, feudal modes of production. But as we see um, both in how Europe underdeveloped Africa and his work in the Russian Revolution, it's a little bit more complicated than that because the agents of, of change and also the subjects of violence and exploitation are not simply the kind of proletarian industrial worker. It's many, many more people that on whom this process is uh, dependent. So I, I'd love to know a little bit more about, I guess, his contributions to Marxism as, uh, as we kind of now maybe understand it. I guess that's such a, yeah, such a, a huge, huge question, question no, really. and I don't really know where to start with that. But <laughs> so I think um, I'm just going to latch on to one point where you're saying about uh, basically also his definition of kind of who is his revolutionary subject mm-hmm. or who he considers. Um, you can you can kind of tell in the kind of, let's say, the title of his final book, mm-hmm. it's a history of the Guyanese working people, mm-hmm. right. right? So right. it kind of is a broader category than the traditional definition of what we might consider the industrial working class because he has to consider both in the African context and in the Guyanese context um, kind of a peasant population that is also kind of right. plays a, a crucial role in the revolutionary process that he, as an activist intellectual, is trying to set in motion. So I think there's categories like this where he kind of adapts and basically I think his commitment is so firm to kind of the study of concrete realities, um, which he reiterates, I think, just throughout his work, mm-hmm. is that we should be constantly looking at the realities on the ground and then we can use those realities to also adapt the categories of Marxism and kind of learn about Marxism from those concrete realities. Yes. In fact, and this is his relationship to C.L.R. James. I mean, right. James was one of, of several intellectuals of the interwar period who basically said, you know, asked the question, what is the working class? Mm-hmm. Well, the working class is not the traditional proletariat. In fact, Marx began to think, rethink that at mm-hmm. the end of his life. But if you think about who, who in the world is producing surplus, the vast, vast, vast majority are people we call peasants, rural workers, uh, producers. And so, you know, Rodney's attraction to studying the Russian peasantry was also tied to what was happening in Tanzania with Ujamaa, with the attempt to develop um, a kind of collectivization of agriculture in Tanzania, which, you know, Rodney was critical of, but was suppressing his own uh, concerns because he was a guest in the country. But still, that changes 
everything. You know, just like you're saying, um, what does it mean to rethink social relations and class relations when most of the people uh, who represent the possible kind of revolutionary insurgency are, are not the ones that are actually benefiting from whatever benefits colonialism provided. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're not the ones, though colonialism provided no benefits. <laughs> just, <exactly. laughs> just disclaimer, but, yeah. But, but like the, the, myth, the myth that somehow, and he talks about this in the book, this myth that, you know, they got railroads and they got towns and cities and they got, you know, tax structures to extract, you know, money from them. But the vast majority of people who produced the wealth did not even benefit from that, let alone educational opportunities and that sort of thing. Mm, and, and there's this um, sort of continual anxiety, like even in the present day, when we, when we uh, think about even things like AI, the replacement of workers, or um, uh, the, the production of a larger, um, what some people see as a sort of surplus workforce that are kind of pushed out of the relationship of like the industrial proletariat um, and a lot of people are wandering around being like ah what do we do how do we have a revolution when we don't have proletarian subjects and he's very way ahead of the game theorizing that form of struggle and particularly I'm interested in this in terms of you know how um, uh, how prescient unfortunately he was on the environmental question I think there's I mean if we're looking at specifically also his home country, Guyana. Mm. Um, I mean, he was active in kind of discourses around bauxite mining then. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of want to really make a case for the relevant of what, relevance of Walter Rodney's thought, is looking at offshore oil projects in Guyana currently ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of almost a legacy of, or a legacy of Walter Rodney's murder that that's kind of, you know, that Guyana has been able to go ahead with projects like these. And it kind of shows you that that kind of conversation that he was starting, which is an eco, it is essentially an eco-socialist conversation also, but very much focused on like also resource extraction, um, how relevant that is still is today and how much we need that conversation to be ongoing and how much we need people to update Walter Rodney's work in light of these kind of new developments. Excellent point. Mm. And uh, talking of updating uh, Walter Rodney's work, I'd kind of uh, love to pause a little bit and uh, ask you, Robin, what that was what that was like collecting his works and you know and, and digging into the archive of you know something that was kind of stolen from you know us as you know anyone invested in a radical project because you know he he did. He was murdered at such a young age, right. very prolific. But of course, um, you know, 38 is nothing in right. a lifetime. Um, so what was it like um, putting that book together, putting the Russian Revolution book together? Right. Can I tell the story? Please. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it's that. a story that people don't really know. First of all, um, I have been working on this on and off for, let's see, 90, 40 years. Wow. And let me explain this, I mean, because it's almost 40 years. No, it's actually 40 years um, in terms of when I began. So I was a graduate student at, at UCLA. Um, and uh, Walter had been assassinated, of course, in 1980. Um, when I was an undergraduate at Long Beach State, um, I discovered how Europe underdeveloped Africa, and that book sent me to graduate school. I became an Africanist because of that book. Mm. I applied to do a study of the development of underdevelopment in Mozambique. That was my <laughs> proposal, <laughs> and it changed over time. So I, I, and of course, I get the, the Howard University uh, Press edition that came out very soon after he uh, 
was killed. Robert Hill wrote an introduction, Vincent Harding. These are people who I came to know very well. Um, Bobby was actually on my dissertation committee. So I arrive at uh, UCLA. This is like about 1983 I arrive. By 84, 85, I'm working with my advisor, Ned Alpers. He has all of Walter Rodney's papers in his office because Pat had to flee the country. Ned was a, a friend. And so all of it was deposited in his office on the fifth floor of Bunch Hall. And so he hired me as a research assistant. That's why my relationship to this book is, is much deeper than I think most people uh, know. So I was um, working for him and, and what, what Ned asked me to do, he says, look, I, it's clear that, that there's a bunch of lectures here and that you know, Walter had planned to make a book out of them. I need you to basically um, put them in a computer and this is the days of, you don't know about this, but they had floppy disks. Computers yeah, were brand new. Icon, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Don't drag me down with this you. Is like, <laughs> and I was like, and it's just terrible software. So computers had just kind of mm. come out. So I was both um, typing these texts, editing the texts, but most importantly, tracking down footnotes. Because as you know from how Europe under, you know, Walter wasn't interested in footnotes, too academic. Yeah. So he would have these quotes and lines, and I'd be in the library reading every single thing in the English <laughs> language on the Russian Revolution. This is like, <laughs> ni- this is so 1985, 1986. Um, and I was working on it, and I got maybe halfway through. And so all those footnotes in the book are my, that's my work. Every single footnote is my work. There, Walter had no footnotes, right? And then by about 1987, I finish uh, my dissertation. I'm still kind of working on it. And then Pat took the papers to find a safer place for them to be deposited. And I had this manuscript sitting on my computer. I didn't really do anything with it and just kind of forgot it. Um, I shared it with uh, Rupert Lewis when he was working on his book on Walter. And then my friend David Rodiger, somehow that copy appeared, got, got into Walter's papers, the, pop, the copy I did. And I think it was Pat or Asha was like, you know, so what is this? Like, where did this come from? Like, they knew about it, but they didn't know that, that a lot of it was my work. And then we got in touch, and that's when we decided, let's go forward and try to finish the book and get it out there. You know, and that was the the background. So it's something I've been living with, like I said, 40 years. Uh, But what's really important about that time is that it's not, this is not a story of kind of working on something for a long time. This is a story of working on something as uh, in motion. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in 1985, 86, no one thought the Soviet Union would collapse. At least not in our circles. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, when, When Walter wrote those lectures. Socialism was winning around the world. See, like, we got to remember that. Yeah. Well, you know yeah. this. Oh, that was the one of the most striking things about reading so much of his work that it's like, oh, this is produced from a moment of like insurgency and hope yes. and the idea of like a genuinely victorious possibility of actually existing socialism, which was so mind-blowing for me. Yeah, I guess exactly. also in terms of like even the Tanzanian context, you had like a socialist project that you could even react against 
Mm -hmm. So you could almost have a radical left to an attempt at a socialist project within that country, and that completely changes the conversation of what you think is possible and what you can exactly, exactly. So you could imagine that part of the optimism expectation had to do with time, place, condition. Mm -hmm. Now, when you fast forward to the post-Soviet collapse, to the the failure or the defeat of third world socialism in many places, the rise of the BRICS, all that, suddenly there's a way in which you could read uh, both how Europe underdeveloped Africa and other texts as like, you know, out of step. I don't agree with that. Uh, But there's a way in which it's a product of its time and place. And I think we have to appreciate what that means. Um, And so when you said update, I think that's a really valuable question to pose. Like, What does it mean to take the basic framework that he provided for us in how Europe underdeveloped Africa and then extend that to some of the issues that you were posing about extractive industry and even questioning the Marxist um, uh, uh, kind of dictum about development. Mm. Because everyone, even as as Rodney's challenging uh, liberal development theory, uh, W.W. Rostow and people like that, there's a way that, that there's a kind of general acceptance that development and growth are good. Mm-hmm. See, that, that's a theme that runs through the book. Yeah. And, and, I, and look, to be fair, everyone thought that. Yeah. But right now, that's not tenable. So how do, we, how do we move forward? And of course, my friend Kevin here is the one's going to, because you're the young person who's going <laughs> to move forward and really revise this. So I'm really love to hear what you have no to pressure, say about it. But, but, yeah. Well, what's coming next? I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I'm really I'm curious as to about, um, is about how we kind of um, wrangle with that in the present. Like, what do we understand a kind of positive version of development to mean? Because as you say, there is this sort of um, uh, attachment to um what maybe we would now understand as a kind of more like bourgeois economist version of what development is. He's um, very um, heavily into the idea of like technology as like the vector of development. And um, obviously in the mo- this moment of ecological crisis, among many other conjunctural crises, we have a lot of reason to kind of um, question that. But I think it's, it's very much... Um, very much able to do that with the kind of basic framework and basic understanding because obviously the other modes of um, criticizing the prospect of quote-unquote development in the African continent is the kind of, you know, deeply, I mean, deeply racist forms of, you know, the doomed continent, prisoners of geography, which has sold a terrifying, terrifying number of uh, copies. Um, But, you know, it's, it's unclear. How do we understand development now? I, I, I genuinely cannot answer that question. It's, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's it's such a difficult. I think it's like such a difficult kind of theme because we have to kind of reconsider all everything. Like basically, that Walter Rodney wrote in light of all the new scientific evidence that we have, mm-hmm. in light of you know, especially when it comes to kind of environmental issues. Right. right. It's. I mean, we know a lot more than Walter did. Right. He was writing this, exactly. right? So he's not even yet aware of the dangers of a particular kind of developmentalist thinking. Exactly. Whereas we, um, in the position that we're in now, are very it's impossible for us to ignore. So it's kind of, I think that is what you're asking is like one of the big questions of, I guess, 
um, socialist strategy, but also anti-imperialist thought right. mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, yeah, what does it mean to do um, basically, or what does, it, what does it even mean to kind of um, develop, or not even, de- not develop, um, what does it mean to kind of break with colonialism, but without the kind of prospect of this kind of developmentalist paradigm? Right. Um, right. Which I think is a really, really challenging question. And I think you have issues, you know, with environmental things, you have issues such as the DRC, which mm-hmm. is demanding uh, payment for not engaging in deforestation. Right. Because it needs to somehow be compensated for the fact that it's not able to p- pursue a very particularly environmentally destructive mm-hmm. um, policy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of negotiating those things is, I think, a really, really difficult question, especially in, term, in terms of the global south, is how these nations are actually going to be able to approach that mm-hmm. and how they're going to be able to essentially break with imperialism without being able to pursue developmental policies that are environmentally destructive. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I'm wondering... Uh, what we um, are to take uh, when approaching this question from uh, his f- formulation of the kind of centre and the periphery, like you know, how does uh, a country in the periphery get there? Like, what do we, what are we pointing at when we um, articulate that process, and you know, has that um, right. changed? <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say that's a really good question because I actually think that the way he understands periphery. Mm-hmm is the way that Samir Amin also understood periphery. Because Samir Amin was probably the only um, economist who Walter really engaged that's associated with the dependency theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think they both would agree that the periphery is not really the periphery. The periphery is the center Mm -hmm. of revolutionary transformation. And it's only the periphery because of its relationship to... um, the violent centers of capital accumulation. And so if we think about that, to go back to what you're saying about um, uh, sort of where we are now and what are the demands, even the demand for reparations, the demand for reparations are coming from those places that we may call the periphery, but the center of the future. This is the future that Fanon imagined, right? Where the kinds of, of struggles preserve the rainforest, resist deforestation, in extractive um, industries, stop drilling, um, and basically don't allow the the capitalist countries of the North to determine um, ownership of technologies, to determine control over um, pharmaceuticals, I mean, all these things that actually have an impact on people's everyday lives, let alone the the use of things like, you know, uh, carbon trading, which is just, the, yeah. it's, like the, it's like the dumbest idea that you can think of because it's saying we're going to basically destroy the planet, but we're going to pay for that privilege. It's like, you know, <laughs> gonna, I'm going to fly first class. You know, it's like that. I'll pay for it. And so there's a way in which... Uh, Sort of thought from sort of thought from the global south, uh, the intellectuals and social movements, maybe not necessarily leadership, is producing a way forward, and that's what he's trying to say when he says the view from the third world or how Europe underdeveloped developed Africa. He's saying that one of the contradictions in colonialism is that you produce this educated elite that actually has capacity to critique the system and maybe have a, a different way forward. 
And let's um, talk about that, actually, because again and again in his work, the centrality of education in revolutionary struggle um, really, really is, is a deeply important thread that he uh, that he pulls on. He's a kind of contemporary of Paolo Freire, who's um, writing The Pedagogy of the Oppressed around this era. Um, um, many other people, of course, um, very much um, focused on the idea of the consciousness raising as um, a necessary part of building towards revolution. And obviously, he's an educator himself as well. Um, so what um, are we to learn from kind of his take on the role of education in this broader project of emancipation? I think it's entirely fundamental to his, mm -hmm. to his whole project. I think he's kind of got this idea that um, his critical pedagogy is kind of a co-intentional education. There's no, he's not going somewhere to instruct someone in something. Mm -hmm. He's going somewhere to have a conversation and learn from each other. So I think that's kind of the famous grounding sessions that he held in Jamaica. That's kind of the principle of that. He's going there, you know, at this point he has many degrees. But he's not going to the people to tell them, I have, you know, I'm going to teach you about African history, right? He's going there to be like, oh, I have some thoughts on African history. You have some knowledge in African history. Let's kind of learn from each other. Um, so I think that's such a central part of Rodney's political project because it kind of creates this um, atmosphere where people can build something together and they feel like they're building something together. And it kind of challenges this very idea of like, oh, you know, Walter Rodney is the vanguard of the revolutionaries right. or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, where it kind of like pushes back quite against that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but then, I mean, what I always found um, fascinating in, in Rodney's, in, specifically in Groundings, is that, you know, he has this consciousness-raising aspect of it, but then he does kind of come at odds with like the Rastas, for example, where he says, oh, but that's not sufficient, right? And then kind of the Marxism comes in where he's like, oh, yes, consciousness-raising, but then there's this next step that, you know, and they're kind of like very skeptical of that next step. So what's the next but step? It's a political revolution. Oh, there it's, we it's go. A revolution. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, they're quite skeptical of his kind of Marxist leanings because, you know, it can be seen in specifically in those circles as like a Eurocentric ideology, right. um, which he, I think, constantly pushed back against. Right. Um, and I guess one thing too about um, the educational aspect, I think, um, which I think Walter Rodney's legacy is underrated as an educator. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one thing when I speak about Walter Rodney or when, it, when he comes up, I think the thing that I like to mention is that he did write two children's books, um, planned to, plan to write another three after that, um, and beautiful children's books that are kind of basically trying to explore Guyanese society and the, as like a multiracial society and trying to help children understand each other. So it's um, really... Yeah, some of them. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like, it's an incredible educational yeah. project. Um, yeah, these and are the only two that were the published, The only two right? that were published. He, he wrote many. But the fact that, you know, you have this, they're beautiful books. I don't want to interrupt you, but... Oh, no, no, um, this is great. Yeah, yeah no, this it's is, great. It's very Blue Peter. Here's very what I mean. he'll, take yeah. these, he'll take these children, young people, and build a story around them. And this is about India, about Vietnam, as well as about Africa and the Caribbean. So, I mean, this is... I'm so glad you posed that because most people don't know about his writing for children. You know? That's that's extraordinary, and, and so how was he? How was he like conceiving of like the role of like educating children? Like, excuse me, um, because you know when we think about like consciousness raising, it's we usually think about it as sort of um, adults who are already in work and already kind of mm -hmm. you know vested in like the system in various ways. But this project of children's education is really fascinating, particularly in the colonial context. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's also, I think, one of the things that um, I find really, really great about it is, I mean, what he's really trying to do is at the root challenge kind of the divisions within working peoples, within mm -hmm. among the working peoples of Guyana, which might be divided along racial lines or other kind of cultural lines. And he's trying to basically educate kids to let them know that, no, no, you are part of the same political project. We can do this together. And it doesn't have to be these divisions. And that exactly. kind of fits very much into his... So the educational work fits very much into his political work with the Working People's Alliance and their kind of approach to what they think the kind of uh, revolutionary subject in Guyana might be. Mm -hmm. I'd love to pick up on something that you mentioned, Kevin, this idea of um, Marxism being uh, Eurocentric and the way he's, he's pushing back against that, because I think there has been um, somewhat of a tradition of... Um, Pan-Africanists who are not Marxists saying he's a Pan-Africanist and Marxists who are not Pan-Africanists saying he's Marxist. And um, <laughs> uh, I'm wondering um, a bit about um, how he, um, you know, how he pushes back against this idea of uh, Marxism as Eurocentric and how he brings together uh, Pan-Africanism and uh, Marxism in his thought. Oh, for me? Yes, for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, it's, I was laughing to myself because... Um, one of the things that that I've been doing is just going back and reading some of the reviews of mm. how Europe underdeveloped Africa uh, before his assassination. And, you know, certainly uh, we know of many nationalists, Pan-Africanists who were kind of anti-Marxist or skeptical. That's the story we know. Uh, what we don't always know is how many European uh, Marxists in South African Marxists, like Martin Legassic, for example, mm. uh, attacked uh, Walter, saying that that the book was kind of insufficiently Marxist. Uh, and what and I and I, I just want to point out Legassic's critique because Martin Legassic gets a lot of credit for being one of the first to uh, coin the phrase racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. And two years before that, this piece he wrote in 76, in 74, he, he uh, reviews the book. And part of what he takes Rodney to task for is, one, not recognizing the way that capitalism inherently uh, uh, raises wages. Because he's thinking Europe. Yeah. He's not... Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, you know, it says that capitalism can result in higher real wages or higher living standards for the working class, and that Rodney doesn't recognize this, um, and how Rodney overplays and overstates the impact of the slave trade. Now, how could you say that? Yeah. Of course, he says that. He says that because he, you know, um, well, there's two reasons he says it. One is because. He's still tied to, like a lot of Marxists today, to the idea of the proletariat as a universal subject mm -hmm. and that manufacturing is the way that you advance the productive forces without actually seeing the dialectical relationship between, you know, extraction and violence um, and even racism. Racism as... because. Rodney says, you know, racism is basically part of the capitalist, um, uh, capitalist thought, mo the mode of thought. Mm -hmm. and, and so Legassic says, if one is not to resort to arguments about racist attitudes, what was special about the specific conjuncture of European merchant capital with African societies? Mm -hmm. Well, racism was a product, a manifestation mm -hmm. of 
what it means to turn uh, human beings into commodities and beasts of burden, right? And so all these things are tied together. And I would make the argument right here today that uh, before there was Martin Legassic's, you know, co-authored essay, Walter Rodney was already moving toward an analysis of racial capitalism mm-hmm. if he didn't use that, those terms. Um, and so he was advancing what we think of as Marxist thought, not simply, and this is the mo- most important thing I want to emphasize, not simply by sort of integrating race or recognizing racial subjugation, but by actually recognizing the relationship between colonialism and the subjugation of the European working class. Mm-hmm. See, and here, um, both in the United States and in Europe, when he just lays out the fact that you know most European workers don't really benefit much from capital accumulation. He calls them, you know, uh, crumbs from the colonial table, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's European workers' failure to seek kind of political power or their inability to seek political power, state power. And in every single case, we know this, both in, in the book but elsewhere, that European uh, working class organization often did not make the colonial question central. They would support policies, uh, including in the Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. where you have uh, French socialists saying, uh, you know, you know we're, we're, we definitely don't want to pull out of, of Africa, uh, but we do want to you know, have democracy in, in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one last thing that I thought was striking that Rodney writes, it's, just, it's the most amazing thing, things that we skip over. He reminds us a, um, that the communist-led popular front fighting for social democratic Spain uh, was defeated by who? The Army of Africa. That is a colonial army of cons- conscripts. But B, that in post-World War I Germany, the moment of the assassination, the killing of Rosa Luxemburg, who did the killing? Who did the killing in Hamburg? They were uh, German forces coming out of East Africa. Mm who had massacred East Africans and had participated in the massacre of the Hero people uh, in in Southwest Africa um, as well. And they were the ones. And he says that was the decisive turning point in German history. For once, the most progressive workers had been crushed. The path was clear for the fascist deformation of the future. That relationship needs to be studied. Because when we Mm -hmm. study it, we're not going to fall into this trap of, you know, class reduction and race reduction. They have no useful, they're useless debate. And and Rodney's pointing way to a a deeply dialectical um, uh, class analysis that takes in consideration what are the social relations in the world that produces the 20th century. And uh, the way in which his, you know, focus on the periphery as the center of his studies, but also the center of the productive world in you know, many, many fundamental ways, really uh, allows us to sharpen our critique of the relationship between like state 
and private mm-hmm. interest because often in I guess of you know European certainly sort of anglophone francophone context the idea that the the private interest the capitalist that's the enemy and the nation state that's the vector of liberation slash the sort of natural given mm-hmm. and uh, the way that he articulates how colonial administration actually works as a process of extraction helps us kind of unpick that process and maybe potentially fingers crossed hopefully disinvest from the idea of the nation nationalism as something that we always have to count out to as an organized left um kevin and you've written about um this sort of fraught question of you know organizing within and against the idea of nationalism and and it's sort of contradictions of of sort of pan-African and Mar- pan-Africanism, pardon me, and Marxism. Wondering um, what you make of, of that question. I mean, it's a huge question that I myself am still trying to grapple with because mm. the things are, and I think there's, you know, a long legacy of people, including Walter Rodney, but also including who you mentioned, Samir Amin, right. who have tried to grapple with this particular problem is like, what does it look like today to kind of do, to engage in a revolutionary process in the global South, right? Mm. Because I think the difficulty sometimes can come with, you know, if you're speaking about nationalism, of course, nationalism, we can't kind of, it's a bad thing as a broader phenomenon. But the difficulty is one can also fall into the trap of um, an empty internationalism, which I also think um, has existed before mm. in kind of the, in the global north. So it's the difficulty of taking seriously the fact that these states exist and mm-hmm. they, they do exist and mm-hmm. we kind of have to somehow manage to work around it or within it or through it or something of the sort. Um, but knowing that, you know, in the classical Marxist sense, it needs to be abolished. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering what you mean by this empty uh, internationalism, because, you know, after the um, fall of the Berlin Wall, the kind of um, uh, disintegration of the idea of this sort of a coherent third worldist politics as um, a sort of a, a way in which like uh, lots of leftists understand themselves. Um, I'm wondering uh, what uh, we are to do with, like, in terms of how we conceive of ourselves um, as internationalists, if we indeed do so. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, this is this. Is I'm hard. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I talk too much and I really love to hear what you, because, you know, having... And, uh, you know, reading your book now, which I have the privilege of reading, which is brilliant. And if you don't buy Red Africa, you're a fool. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but you I'd love to hear you on this because this, this is, this is, in fact, this is a place, I'd love to hear you on this in part because this is a place where some of the um, anarchist thinking as well as the, those who are thinking kind of uh, post-nationalist um, are kind of coming together to think about what the nation state looks like in the age of the BRICS. Yeah, you know? and I think it's also kind of, you know, there's so many phenomena that kind of need to be integrated into this way of thinking, right? It's regional integration mm-hmm. um, projects that are obviously most of them are taking place in a fundamentally capitalist way. Right. So it's, you know, there could be an idea of having a socialist version of that or like, um, but, you know, the way it's kind of going right now, it's like, you know, in terms of like the BRICS or... Even in, um, you know, sometimes I look at like East African regional integration, but it's happening in a very particular kind of way. But there is an idea that this is possible as like a socialist kind of variant of, you know, so there are, I think, alternatives. But I think the 
I guess maybe what I complain about sometimes is that it's very, these are very, very difficult questions that require very intensive study and looking at what the social, what the realities are on the ground, which is what Rodney did, um, and kind of getting to kind of an answer from there. But I think oftentimes we're scared to properly engage with those kind of slippery questions because they're right. difficult right. and they, you know, and they are just difficult questions to answer, but they're problems of political strategy, which should be, and specifically revolutionary strategy, which right. should be at the forefront of our thinking. Right, exactly. You know, it's interesting because I think about how different um, regional development is now than it was, say, in the 70s and 80s, where the, the new international economic order idea uh, was one that was uh, socialist-oriented, uh, whereas the BRICS... It's like we're going to control the currency. We're going to control. We're going. I mean, the BRICS nations are some of the fastest growing in terms of inequality. But then you know, you know how you think about um, East Africa and the potential for some regional uh, uh, cooperation. The CARICOM, yeah. um, uh, or the with the Caribbean, you know, uh, basin initially was like driven by people like Manly, uh, you know, and then it becomes more like how do we coordinate capitalist development as opposed to redistributive um, uh, uh, relationships. And even Kwame Nkrumah's vision of the United States of Africa, it was never really uh, based on a capitalist model, Mm -hmm. but something else. And I feel like that these... Do you think that that's lost? Yeah, it feels lost. I think it feels lost, but it's just, I think we find ourselves in a, you know, it's kind of, we were talking about that particular historical moment when Rodney's writing or whatever, where, um, yeah, these things seem tangible and real. And I think for, in in a lot of situations we find ourselves in, or the situation we find ourselves in now, that seems to have dropped away as a tangible, real, concrete thing that we can achieve. Um, So I guess that probably has impacted how much people think about these as viable alternatives. So let's talk a little bit then about um, his work as an activist, organiser, revolutionary subject, however you want to put it, because um, that is, of course, um, what uh, put an end to um, his life at uh, 38 when he was um, uh, organising with the Working People's Alliance in Guyana. And um, I was wondering, Robin, if you could just tell us a little bit about that moment. Right. Well, let's name the let's name the culprit, mm. Forbes Burnham. Yes. yes. Um, let's say he was, and we know this now from the the recent investigation and hearings, that the so-called socialist president, mm-hmm. who, and again, I want to complicate matters. <laughs> Please. The, the same uh, president who claimed the kind of socialist commonwealth of Guyana, who was who's used his. Uh, used the country as the base of operations for the New Jewel movement in Grenada, which we have to be really careful about, you know, romanticizing that. Um, And that Walter Rodney, um, when he returned back to uh, Guyana, when he left Tanzania the last time, uh, Burnham had it out for him from the the Mm get-go. He helped, you know, Walter helped found the... um, Working People's Alliance with Andaye and others uh, began to organize 
even before he began organizing against Burnham, Burnham had, you know, uh, 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 blocked him from taking a post as a chair of history at the National University of Guyana. So here he is, doesn't have a job. Pat, who's a nurse, is, you know, trying to make money. They're surviving and they're organizing the whole time against Forbes Burnham. And what are they building? They're building a multiracial, working class alliance of indigenous people, uh, you know, South Asian, um, uh, 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 Guyanese, and Africans together. Uh, a great threat to Burnham. And, and again, it's very, very hard to remember what it was like in those days because um, it, in many circles, even on the left, the Working People's Alliance was, was not um, romanticized. It was, not, it was persona non grata. There were people who support Burnham over the WPA. Um, now, of course, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm all WPA. <laughs> but it wasn't like that. So to me, when looking at the last stages of his life, I mean, I make the argument that um, Walter Rodney was actually moving away from whatever vestiges of, of, of a more rigid Marxism that he held on to, or even for that matter, the idea of national liberation. He was moving away from that to a kind of real recognition of the power of popular democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and that... You know, he always understood that she moved with the people, but I think that he actually had had, had um, pulled back from this idea of that there is anything that even appears to look like a vanguard party, and that part of and the sad part of his assassination mm -hmm. is his deep trust of the people in motion. Uh, which put him on the front lines and in the sights of Burnham for, you know, and ultimately his murder. But I just, I just want to encourage people to read as much of his writings and speeches from the last years of his life. Mm -hmm. And also you mentioned the um, posthumously completed um, History of the Guyanese Working Class, which is a masterpiece both of historical scholarship, but also of what it means to build a national liberation movement that really is a working class movement that's internationalist, that's rooted in the multiple histories of migration, um, of you know, rural and urban relationships, uh, and also um, you know, what it means to build a, a radical movement against a colonial state. You know, and he, he lays that out beautifully. Uh, it's um, strange almost taking full account of uh, uh, moments such as this in history um, because often, you know, and like, for many good reasons that uh, we think about um, the, the struggles of socialist projects and the struggle of um, uh, proto-socialist states, socialist states in terms of, um, you know, material histories. And there's this um, almost terrifying um caprice that goes along with it when you think about like the number of people who were assassinated who were murdered by um by nation states via the sort of u.s jakarta method and you know how much we lost along the way 
I mean, for me, it's kind of partly that's also something that I'm trying to get to in the book is like the scale of kind of this political tradition that was lost is like, I think people don't realize sometimes how many people were actually killed at right, that time right. and how influential these people were and how much they represented this other way of thinking about national liberation. That wasn't just kind of like a kind of statist project of national development. You know, people who were really asking really pressing questions and who are really trying to push these projects into a socialist direction. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when we start naming the people, it's like we can go Walter Rodney and then we go backwards. We can go Amakar Cabral. Right. You know, it's, it's people like Eduardo Mondlan too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's a very, very long list of people or, you know, even people who were then imprisoned or exiled or, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of, it has, yeah. And I think for, for me, oftentimes revisiting those periods of time, like, it's the same as revisiting um, Rodney's work. It kind of like lets you know that there's an incomplete project there. Right. And specifically, this is always what I get to with Rodney's work. It's What I like about it a lot is the kind of almost incompleteness of it. Mm-hmm. The fact that it gestures towards something that we need to be doing and that we should pick up this project like now and right. it provides us with the basis to do so and we can kind of pick up that work and continue to develop it. If I can ask you to sort of um, speculate in this sort of sad context of um, I'm, I'm wondering what you would want um, like a, a living Walter Rodney today to weigh in on like what do you kind of look around at and think like I want to see Walter Rodney's book on X I wonder it's, it's for me that's I'll, I'll let you answer that as well Robin but for me that's a, a, the question is I think the conversation would be different if he had been around oh yeah so he wouldn't even need to uh, publish into these various but I think yeah. he could have We're been able to we into a change. paradox for sure yeah so I, I do think it's kind of one of those ones where the conversation would have shifted I think oh, yeah. quite a lot and then a figure like that among many others is missed solely because just the political conversation has developed in a different way since then right Absolutely. I mean, you know, the fact that Walter Rodney of 1966 is not Walter Rodney of 1974, Mm -hmm. which is not Walter Rodney of 1978. Um, You know, and so I guess my answer to the question is that we are all Walter Rodney. You know, if we, if when we think about it, we really, if we really are students of his life and work, um, one, the fact that he was a student of many lives and works of people we've never heard of, as well as people like James and George Padmore. Uh, and, you know, I've written about uh, Rodney and, and Rosa Luxemburg and how their, their lives kind of parallel in many ways, uh, both killed by social democratic regimes, by the way. Remember that. Um, uh, but... They were products of the movements and times, and we are that too. And if we learn anything, it's both recognizing the um, that's the bloody stream of violence that you talked about, how many people are lost in the way, uh, but then what is our responsibility to understand now our time, place, condition, uh, with the lessons of the past, but not being held back by it, you know, um, and not taking any of these books and raise them to the iconic status where we can't get past it. And this is a problem with Marxist friends of mine. They <laughs> they, they confuse. If I take this person, I mean, look, I'm a Marxist too, but I'm like this. This is a, they they confuse, um, uh, say, 
you know, three volumes of Capital or, you know, Grundvis or, you know, or, you know, um, the Civil War in France with the Bible. Mm. Yeah. And even the Bible is not something that you have to take seriously. So, or, or take as fixed. And so our job is not even to ask the question of Walter, is to ask the question of us. Yeah. And I think just pushing back, or like um, just responding to that quickly, I think it's such a good point that you make. I think it's oftentimes, especially, I think, a debate that Walter Rodney contributes quite to quite a lot is the nature of how we understand exploitation, for right. example, right? Mm-hmm. And there's often the conversation that comes up that, oh, this can't be exploitation because it doesn't fit the classic definition. Of, and it's, oh, but it is. It's just uh, you kind of have to adapt the concept and think right. through how it changes in these particular contexts. Right. So I think, right. yeah, and I think Walter Rodney is, is a great kind of model of how to do that kind of work. But yes, you're completely right. It's kind of up to us to pick up and it's kind of up to us to develop it for the contemporary context. Yeah, there's this sort of um, necessary like rewiring or like reflexibilization, if I can put it like that, of some fundamental concepts um, in uh, Marxist thoughts sort or of socialist thought more broadly in terms of what wealth is, mm-hmm. what accumulation means, what exploitation is, and like the fundamental relationship between the worker and the boss, right? And he's, right. he's charting in the in this way, it's so detailed, mapping out in like this extraordinary sort of combination of history, geography, economic theory, um, the, the the detail of, of these sort of patterns of um, asset stripping, like, uh, for instance, the, uh, the fact that capitalists, bosses could pay African workers so much less, partly because they had access to um, some form of subsistence farming. Now, that's not the model of exploitation that other people might recognise as this is classic proletarian, but it exists. It happens in the world, so what now? (laughs) Right? And and I'm wondering, I guess, how we take up that challenge um, in terms of our approaches to the now to, to our approaches to scholarship i guess for me a, a lot of the thing is kind of you know um i look at sometimes specifically the african context you know the study of capitalism in african studies is like is relatively young surprisingly right. young right. I, I think and you know it's been right. now a couple of years where it's kind of picked up pace mm-hmm. again and it's like oh but this is kind of that's a crucial aspect of that we need to understand mm-hmm. how does it actually work mm-hmm. um you know and it's like looking at the details of it which includes both like sociological work Political economic, a critical political economic work, um, yeah, anthropology. Um, but I think it is the kind of study of those concrete realities that needs to be kind of pushed a little bit further because I think our understanding of how capitalism in the African context, for example, works today is still severely limited. And that kind of gives us more of an idea of like, oh, what's the nature of exploitation in this context? What, how does this, you right. know, we can kind of get a better sense of how these things actually function. And then you, from there, you can kind of like think about how to organize. Exactly. Because, you know, th- right. that's kind of the next step once you've understood the context of, right. of struggle. Yeah. Exactly. And the best example of that is as we move, as, as we have moved into this kind of neoliberal order, the idea of national bourgeoisies mm-hmm. is just sort of um, almost irrelevant. You know, the idea of like n- these national economies when in fact... Um, capital has moved way beyond. They're, they don't care about the nation state unless the nation state is the source for uh, the the accumulation of violence, mm-hmm. right? That's what they it's mm-hmm. used for, um, or as a way to control the movement of labor. 
But capital has no boundaries or borders. And so, you know, when you think about, you know, like when you go online, you say, well, who's the richest person in the world? And you're like, oh, wait, they're in Mexico. Oh, no, they're in, I mean, they're, they're not necessarily uh, rooted in the kinds of north-south structures that we've inherited. So therefore, mm-hmm. what does organizing look like? You know, what does internationalism look like in those contexts? Um, and why is it that we keep, especially in the United States, I can't say UK, but in the US, people still fall into a kind of nationally bound, I mean, I'm talking about the left, sort of uh, discussion, what does organizing look like? And cross-border organizing is not something that um, people pay as much attention to, which is odd given the fact that the most vibrant uh, international struggles against neoliberalism uh, begin, at least on, in terms of the visual presence, not in the U.S., but in Mexico, in Chiapas. That, that, that was the center of an insurgency against neoliberalism. Um, and this is part of the lesson, I think, that, that Walter's work shows us that you have to pay, pay attention to the political economy. Um, when he writes about the history of slavery and says, you know, the Upper Guinea Coast had no tradition of, you know, chattel slavery or any kind of slavery for that matter, that breaks with orthodoxy. And we have to do the work that in, ends up breaking with orthodoxy in order to find out how to move forward. And still that's not always the answer. Yeah, there is this a uh, persistent um, attitude that, like, because of um, a, um, absolute cast iron given of historical materialism, the countries that are the most traditionally, in bourgeois economics terms, developed will always be on the vanguard of revolution because they have the most capitalism. So right. they, ha- yeah. they will have the most communism in this sort of strange equation. And history has, pro- has proven that is so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It has yeah. never over happened. And over, again, over and over it again. It has too. never <laughs> happened. Yeah, yeah. Where are the revolutions? Mexico, mm-hmm. Russia. I mean, these are the revolutions. Yeah. Most of the, the, the fact that, that there's a point where most of the socialist world was the, what we call the global south. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that some of those places are no longer socialist is because someone got shot, mm-hmm. you know? Or they, or in the, the fact that Cuba survived this long mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah. I mean, they're dealing with the, the level of blockade that Haiti had to deal with. Yeah. You know? So here we, 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 the fact that we still hold on to that, we need to discard it, you know, take what we can learn and then I understand where we are. Just finally, I, I'd like to ask you both about that question of, of learning from history um, because you know, he's writing from within the context of um, uh, the Soviet Union, a lot of um, socialist experiments going on all around the world. And there is a sort of, uh, certainly in the, the UK left, a very much a, um, a taboo sometimes around the the idea of the possibility of learning from uh, the Soviet Union, learning from past um, socialist nations, socialist experiments, because of, you know, understandably in many ways, because of, you know, uh, the violence and terror that took place under Stalinism. Um, But I'm I'm just wondering, uh, in the context of a writer who who was so embedded in socialist struggles at the time, you know, how are we to look back on that moment of history and I guess be prepared to not just chuck it all in the bin. Kevin? 
Oh, what that that particular kind of um, the projects from that time? Do you mean? I mean, I mean the project projects from that time, from that time, both of kind of socialist nation building and yeah. sort of the Soviet Union, sort of more generally. I guess I, I mean it's just um, seeing it as like, the same way Rodney does. I think mm-hmm. you can allow for a critical interrogation without necessarily breaking from particular mm-hmm. projects and saying it has nothing to do with what we're doing now, what we right. do. You know, I think sometimes there can be a tendency for people to think this particular thing they're doing is novel. And, right. You know, it's never been tried. <laughs> right. but, you know, we're doing something completely new here. It has yeah. nothing to do with this. Or what the, and I think there is a way of taking seriously, kind of critically engaging with it and really coming to grips with what happened, what went wrong, what, you know, et cetera, like those kinds of questions, while still maintaining that this was a part of an idea, of a bigger idea that was happening. And it kind of, we exist in the wake of that and somehow in relation to that, and we kind of have to come to terms with how it's also shaped the way we think about it now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I totally agree with that. And, and I also completely agree with how important it is to have a deep, serious, I hate to use the word objective, but a careful assessment because it's easy to, um, to dismiss Eastern Europe and Soviet, uh, Soviet Union for falling under the spell of, of, of state capitalism, Stalinism. But if you're standing in a place like Mozambique in the 1970s um, or Angola, uh, and you need resources, mm-hmm. and Eduardo Mandelani goes to um, the United States, he goes to Kennedy, says, I need resources. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You know, Portuguese are our friends. <laughs> <laughs> and and you have actually a place to go. It almost doesn't matter. That's the history we have to contend with. The the elimination of the Soviet Union and the whole that whole structure meant that the kinds of resources available for the national liberation movements that were socialist oriented shriveled up. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really, I think, an important lesson not to romanticize or glorify those things, but to understand the historical context and the possibility of you know what was in front of what was strategically in front of people. Um, and I don't want to get in trouble, people think, oh, you know, the ends justifies the means. No, it's not that at all. But I'm sorry, most of us are not in situations where revolution is not a luxury, but it's your own survival, right? As a people as a nation, after you have been eliminated from history under colonialism, mm-hmm. and you come back, and you take whatever, like my, my friend John Bracy, who passed away recently, he, he, he used to say this thing I, that was so prescient. He said, you know, when you're in a fight and someone hands you, you know, a stick, you're not going to stop to analyze the wood, right? And that is the history that we have to kind of contend with. It doesn't make it right but it makes it real. Mm -hmm. And there, I think we will have to leave it. Thank you so much, Robin and Kevin, for joining me. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been the Verso Podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. Join us next week where we'll be talking about Bodies Under Siege with Sean Norris. You've been listening to the Verso Podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.